Six o'clock straight up, and this is the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. Glad you're with us on this Wednesday evening. I guess we're going to be switching into a standard time sometime soon. Not sure exactly when, but it'll get dark uh, quite a bit sooner than it is now. Still uh, the flaming embers of daylight here at six o'clock. And uh, I know a lot of you probably watched or listened to or have heard accounts of the Democratic debate yesterday. I've heard the accounts. I was working last night doing another radio show, so I did not get a chance to actually see the debate. Um, That puts me at a disadvantage largely because you end up having to scour media to get a sense of exactly what took place. And uh, depending on what media you watch, for example, I was uh, at the gym earlier today, and they had Fox News on a monitor, And some blonde-haired woman, I don't know who she is, I don't know, Megyn Kelly or whomever, uh, was talking about the debate and said, well, uh, they brought up the Black Lives Matter movement, and my 12-year-old daughter said to me, who was watching the debate with me, my 12-year-old daughter said, does that mean my life doesn't matter? God, how trite. Well, I'm I'm sure she'll be joining a... uh, her daughter will be joining a uh, future Republican club sometime soon. But uh, it, there's a, a wide, uh, wide splay, I guess, for want of a better term, of analysis on the debate. The general consensus appears to be that Hillary Clinton won. Now, there are a couple things we ought to pay, uh, pay attention to in the context of Hillary Clinton winning this debate. One She won debates in the run-up to the 2008 presidential election. She won a couple. Didn't help her. We didn't have a President Hillary Clinton after the election of 2008. So we need to be clear about the fact that debates do not elect presidential candidates. Not even the nominee. They don't even get the nomination out of debates. Are they important? Sure, they're important. You get to understand people's policy positions and at least... Uh, it appears as though the Democratic debate was not the uh, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey circus that the Republicans have had. They got another one coming up at the end of the month. Uh, very, very, uh, that's something I know I will miss. Let's just put it that way. But let's say for the sake of argument, Hillary Clinton did win. At least a couple of accounts I've seen have uh, made clear the fact that most analysts, and I hate to use that term, most analysts, I don't know what you need to do to qualify to be an analyst, but what the heck. Uh, Most analysts say that she probably did not sway uh, Bernie Sanders' hardcore supporters. Uh, The others, and it's interesting because I thought Jim Webb might have had a chance to distinguish himself during this debate. And uh, again, the media consensus is that he did not. Uh, Lincoln Chafee, same thing. Missed opportunity, perhaps. Um, I don't, I'm not sure that either one of those two moved anybody off the dial in terms of saying, oh, okay, well, I was going to support somebody or I was undecided, and out of this debate, I'm supporting Jim Webb or I'm supporting Lincoln Chafee. That's not really the issue, however. Um, it's interesting, Hillary Clinton attacked Bernie Sanders, or certainly criticized Bernie Sanders, I don't know if you want to call it an attack, on his positions on gun control, which I found fascinating. She attacked Bernie Sanders on his left flank, on the flank that a lot of voters support him based on. And I'm not saying that they support him based on his gun control policy or his gun control votes, But that's an issue that most people figure Bernie Sanders was pretty solid on as far as progressive credentials are concerned. So she hit him on that. 
And, you know, uh, the New York Times says, by the end of Tuesday night's debate, Mrs. Clinton had seized every opening to try and accomplish her chief goal, reestablishing trust with Democrats who have come to doubt her honesty and political competence after months of difficulties and shifting policy positions. Yeah, she shifted policies. Uh, and we all know how that uh, hurt John Kerry when he ran in 04. However, and this is this is important. Uh, I don't know how many Democrats are hitting Hillary Clinton on her honesty. That seems to be the sole province of the Republicans. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy, when it came to the Benghazi committee, uh, just jumped up and essentially said, yeah, we're trying to damage Hillary Clinton. Um, I think she had to come out progressive. And I think that many of the conservative commentators, Eric Erickson and his ilk, uh, were probably celebrating. Uh, Hillary's not a moderate anymore. She's a progressive. They're trying to, by the way, uh, demonize the word progressive much in the way they've demonized the term liberal to make people shy away from being either called progressive or identifying themselves as progressive. Well, I don't know about the rest of you, but it ain't going to work with me, okay? I'm a progressive, and I'm not particularly concerned in any way, shape, or form about others who try to demonize that term. You know, they're doing it with de Blasio here in New York, too. Uh, he's, and, uh, you know, we, we, I don't have this as a story, but there are some people who are telling him, people in New York, no less, are telling him he doesn't need to go out to Iowa and hold town hall meetings. Uh, to establish or burnish his progressive credentials. But that's another story for another day. The plain fact of the matter is that they, in, in Hillary Clinton taking some progressive positions, uh, they're trying, the, the Republicans certainly are trying to brand her with that progressive moniker and try and damage her in the court of public opinion based on that progressive moniker. Now, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not they succeed at that. I am of an opinion that Hillary Clinton is not uh, not necessarily viewed with skepticism by Democrats based on her honesty, but instead based on policy positions that have changed over time. You know, some of the some of the, the, the things that her husband endorsed as president, she now opposes. Uh, free trade and those sorts of things. And certainly the Trans-Pacific Partnership is uh, something, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is uh, a, a great mark against the current president, Barack Obama. Um, Hillary Clinton last night, I believe, said, well, I'll scrutinize each one of these treaties and I won't approve any of them as president unless I can look middle-class America in the eye and say, this is going to either raise your wages or get you more jobs or something along those lines. Well, there are people who would argue that wasn't always her position on some of these issues. Um, but, you know, when it comes to income inequality, when it comes to gun control, those sorts of things, she is, in fact, uh, and certainly last night, saying things that many progressives would want to hear from any candidate who was running. Um as for Bernie Sanders, I see, again, I didn't see the debate last night. But when I read the accounts of the debate, um, Bernie Sanders saying that America doesn't care about Hillary Clinton's emails was a, uh, I think, a, a, a good thing, a noble thing for him to say in the context of a debate. Could you, for example, imagine Donald Trump making that kind of concession to somebody? Of somebody he shared a stage with in a debate format. The fact is, Bernie Sanders was trying last night to live up to his stated intention not to get into the political muck and mire. And to the extent that he didn't do that, I think his supporters will be very happy with his performance at the debate. Uh, Hillary Clinton may have tried to rock him on his heels, Hillary Clinton may have gone after him because it was Hillary Clinton that needed to go after him. Bernie Sanders, after all, at least in some polls, is winning in New Hampshire, beating her in New Hampshire, something I'm sure her campaign never, ever, ever anticipated. 
So it's going to be interesting to see as these debates go forward. The other thing that, that seemed to come out of this from a media standpoint, and I emphasize from a media standpoint, several in the media have said that Hillary Clinton's performance last night means Joe Biden has no reason to run anymore. And that apparently Joe Biden's fortunes are tied somehow to Hillary Clinton's. If she was sinking further in the polls, if she did a bad job at the debate last night, that would open the way for Biden to make a run. I don't know whether that's true, to tell you the God's honest truth. I'm not sure that Joe Biden's fortunes ought to be uh, inexorably tied to Hillary Clinton's. I'm not sure that's, that's a given here. Um, there are still a lot of people, apparently, that want to see him run. I am, am uh, I, I'm not going to say ambivalent because it's not, I don't want to put it in the negative light. I believe the more candidates for election, the merrier. You know, I, I think the circus they got over in the Republican, I think is wildly entertaining. In fact, And, you know, all, what is it, 14 of them are still left? God love them. Let, let them go at it again. If they think that they can, you know, sway America by dragging out nonsense. I mean, I heard uh, Jeb Bush come out with one of the most convoluted explanations for why the Affordable Care Act needed to be destroyed, as I, I think I've ever heard. And by the way, part of Bush's plan is to get rid of one of the central parts of the ACA, or Obamacare, and that is you can't turn people down for insurance with pre-existing conditions. Bush wants to get rid of that. I, I don't know. I, I'm not quite sure why or how. I don't even think Obamacare is that hot button an issue, given the numbers of people who have actually become insured since its principal tenants have gone into effect. But that's another discussion for another day. Um, if it went Hillary's way, let's see what she does with it. See, debates have a shelf life in the never-ending news cycle. And, you know, uh, you know, Fox News will probably trot out a few more things, like I heard this woman say, oh, mommy, does this mean I don't matter because they discuss Black Lives Matter? Um, I find that amazing that she would actually have shared that with an audience. <laughs> okay, I really do. But, you know, the intent there was clear. What, they, what she was trying to do was demonize Black Lives Matter. For some reason, and, and you know, I, I don't necessarily want to get into this uh, on this program, but for some reason, Black Lives Matter scares the crap out of an awful lot of conservatives, an awful lot of Republicans, which I, I think is a good thing. Don't get me wrong now. Um, but Black Lives Matter scares people. Mainly because it puts the issue, this is just my opinion, puts the issue of race up front. And there are people on both sides of the political divide who are profoundly uncomfortable with the notion of race having a prominent position in any discussion. And Black Lives Matter, obviously, is taking that discussion forward. I mean, I, you know, I may not have agreed with them totally about interrupting Bernie Sanders, but what the heck? Bernie Sanders took a position on police violence against black people after what Black Lives Matter did. So, so much for that. And, and by the way, if you doubt the need for a Black Lives Matter, I got another story for you coming up. And uh, I think it will vindicate their positions on issues. Now, there's another story that's interesting um, and, and could have, could have some very deep ramifications in the future. A jury in Milwaukee late yesterday awarded more than $5 million in damages to two police officers who were severely wounded with a pistol that a local gun shop sold to a straw buyer back in 2009. They only deliberated nine hours after a two-week trial. The jury of eight women and four men decided that the unusual lawsuit, they decided the unusual lawsuit in favor of the plaintiffs, the two cops. Gun control advocates hoped the verdict would encourage more victims and lawyers 
to sue what they say is a small minority of gun stores that make questionable sales. Now, I'm not going to argue or quibble with the notion that it's a small number. Maybe it is. But this is fascinating because these kinds of lawsuits are very rarely brought, and when they are, most of the time, the plaintiffs don't win. The jury found that this particular store, which is called Badger Guns, I believe, uh, that they had been seriously negligent in selling the gun when there were signs the ostensible purchaser was fronting for an 18-year-old who went to the store with the guy. One month after that purchase, the 18-year-old, a guy named Julius Burton, shot two cops, Officer Brian Norberg in the face and Officer Graham Kunish in the head and body, leaving him with brain damage and a destroyed eye. Now, uh, uh, apparently Badger Guns is a former gun store in uh, West Milwaukee. The shop owners say they're going to appeal the decision. Interesting. But this was a very closely watched case, although it may not have gotten a great deal of media attention. It was only nine days long. Uh, But the case arose when a guy named Jacob Collins, who was 21, bought a Taurus semi-automatic pistol at Badger Guns on behalf of this guy, Julius Burton, who's 18. He was too young to legally purchase a gun. However, and this is the important part, the kid, Burton, helped select the weapon. Helped select the weapon. By the way, Julius Burton is serving 80 years for attempted murder because two cops didn't die, thank God. And Collins, the guy who bought the gun, Jacob Collins, got two years for the illegal purchase. Now, it's only the second time in the past decade that a civil lawsuit alleging negligent negligent sales by a gun shop reached a jury. Victims and city governments tried to sue the gun industry dozens of times in the 1980s and after, but more than 30 states and Congress passed laws barring most lawsuits against gun makers and sellers for the way that buyers use their products. So even with all of the stars aligned against them, these two police officers did, in fact, manage to prevail. The federal law is called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, but it does provide for exceptions that were cited in this case. Victims wounded with a weapon can still pursue civil damages if the seller of a firearm knew or should have known that the transaction was illegal or that it would very likely pose a danger. And if the jury heard, which I'm sure they did, that the two guys went in there together, Collins and Burton, Burton too young to buy a gun, they go in together and Collins buys the gun, but he buys the gun that Burton, the 18-year-old, picked. That would seem to... uh, indicate that maybe there was a preponderance uh, of him. And by the way, Burton was seen on a security videotape helping Collins choose the handgun. And apparently they walked outside together when Collins didn't have enough money in his pocket to cover the transaction, which was for $414. Now, interestingly enough, and, and this should have raised the red flag over at Badger Guns. I bet you they wish they had looked at this. Apparently, Collins struggled with the paperwork, and he checked on a federal form that he was not buying the gun for himself. Then he altered the answer when the clerk noted it was inconsistent with what he had said out of the state form. So apparently, you know, the clerk said, hey, you filled out something different here, but it didn't raise any red flags. And I, I submit that part of the reason why it didn't raise, raise any red flags is because People who are in the business of selling guns want to do just that. Do all of them cut corners? No, I'm not saying all of them cut corners. But what I am saying is that gun sellers are in the business of selling guns. So if they, you know, if if somebody, and I'm not saying, you know, people are unscrupulous or whatever, but this kind of situation should have, made the hairs on the gun seller's arm stand up on end. This isn't a Second Amendment case. 
Most people will argue that anybody who shoots two cops doesn't deserve the protection of the Second Amendment. That's not what it was for. And now it looks like maybe this particular case, assuming it's not overturned on appeal, could set a precedent that would make some gun store owners, the ones that maybe are a little bit slipshod, maybe it will cause them to suddenly say, hey, wait a minute, you know what? I can't afford a $5 million judgment. I'm going to make sure this person is licensed and he's not a straw buyer. Because, see, straw buyers are a really, really big problem in this country. And, uh, you know, most of them are not silly or stupid enough to go into a store with the person that they're actually buying the gun for and let the kid choose the gun. Most straw buyers don't operate that way. But what they do is go into a store and assuming they can legally buy the gun, they buy it. And, of course, the gun, gun shop owners, I have nothing to do with that. He presented the proper paperwork. He has no convictions, whatever. Person buys the gun, turns it over to the person that gave him the money to buy the gun, and then the person goes, is not what the Second Amendment was supposed to be about the business of protecting. But it happens all too often. I have said on this program before that people ought to take a very long and hard look whenever you hear about a homicide, especially big, you know, those that are well publicized, find out where the guns had gone. Find out who bought the guns. Where did they buy the guns? Were the guns used in a crime before? And sometimes you're going to find, not always, but sometimes you're going to find that, in fact, these people did use guns or sold guns to people who then used them in crimes, who in turn sold them to somebody else, and they were used in other crimes. I remember there was a, a story, a, a case on Long Island where some people got killed, and then it turned out the gun they used had been used to kill a bunch of teenagers in Newark. That's what lax gun laws allow people to do. And for people to hide behind the Second Amendment and say, ah, no, that's not good enough. That's not certainly not worth the lives of two Milwaukee police officers. That's what this jury found. Let's see how that happens going forward. Now, another story, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Some of you may remember the name Tamir Rice, 12-year-old kid carrying a toy gun who was shot dead by police officers in Cleveland, Ohio. And now there is, in fact, a report, and the prosecutor in the case released the report, that says... A Cleveland cop was justified in fatally shooting Tamir Rice. The reports were commissioned by the prosecutor's office investigating Rice's death, and they were prepared by two experts from outside the state of Ohio. One was a retired FBI agent, Kimberly Crawford, and the other is S. Lamar Sims, a Colorado-based prosecutor. The reports will be turned over to a grand jury, which will ultimately decide whether or not to indict the cops involved in Tamir Rice's death. An attorney for Rice's family says the reports are a charade. And he blasted, uh, blasted the prosecutor's office for releasing supposed expert reports in an effort to absolve the officers involved in Tamir's death of responsibility. That's a direct quote from the attorney. Now, this is an outrage. Okay? To say, now, the, the, the sin of Tamir Rice, who's dead, by the way, was that he had a toy gun and it had, they had some, somebody had removed the orange thing that usually goes in the uh, head of the barrel. So you know, looking at it, it's a toy gun. And the rationale here apparently was, well, the cops weren't looking at how old he was. 
They were looking at his hands and the fact that he had a gun in his hands and they felt their lives were in danger. Therefore, they were justified in shooting him seconds after they encountered him. Seconds after they encountered him. Now, I don't like to use this kind of terminology loosely, but yo, the fix is in. Just like Eric Garner, just like many other cases over the years, these cops in Cleveland are not going to be held accountable for killing Tamir Rice. They're not. In point of fact, the Rice family attorney, Subod Chandra, said reasonable jurors could find that conduct, in other words, killing Tamir Rice, unreasonable. But they will never get the chance because the prosecutor is diligently working to ensure that there is no indictment and no accountability. The reports that were released over the weekend concluded that Tamir Rice presented a threat to police officer Timothy Lohman, who opened fire on, uh, opened fire on him just seconds after pulling up next to him outside a recreation center. And, of course, one of the guys that did the report, Lamar Sims, there can be no doubt that Rice's death was tragic and indeed when one considers his age, heartbreaking. However, for all the reasons discussed herein, I conclude that Officer Lohman's belief that Rice posed a threat of serious physical harm or death was objectively reasonable, as was his response to that perceived threat. Now, did they give the kid a chance to drop the gun? Did they, and by the way, the original 911 call from somebody who reported that this kid was playing in the park, Tamir Rice was playing in the park, said that the gun might be a toy and that the kid is probably a juvenile. But apparently the cops that responded didn't hear any of that. And so a 12-year-old's life was forfeited. And people want to ask why Black Lives Matter exists. And they want to get into all kinds of quibbling about whether, you know, you're talking about Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter or Matter Lives Matter. The fact is, Black Lives Matter exists because these kinds of cases don't always result in justice. That's why Black Lives Matter exists. It's not because people got decided to get together one day and say, hey, you know what? We're going to start a new organization. We're going to call it Black Lives Matter. You see? You all know a 12-year-old kid? You know, uh, do you know children that age, some of you? Maybe you got grandkids that age, or nieces or nephews, or grandnieces or grandnephews. What is that 12-year-old child's life worth to you? What is your 12-year-old's life, or someone in your family's 12 or a kid down the street? What is that child's life worth to you? You know, there were people that argued, well, the kid shouldn't have had a toy gun. Maybe not. But cops shouldn't have shot him dead seconds after they encountered him either. And it looks as though, at this point, no one will be called to account. Now, it's possible that even after receiving these reports, which the prosecutor, by the way, released publicly, that the prosecutor will bring this case before a grand jury and they will return indictment, an indictment against this cop woman. Maybe they will. I wouldn't, however, hold my breath, okay? I would not hold my breath. And if people want to know why organizations like Black Lives Matter exist and other organizations that are fighting police brutality, and in so many cases, we're talking about 
unarmed people, not just Tamir Rice, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, all of these different people died. They had no weapons, but they died anyway. I'd love to hear from you about this because I think it's important. I think lives do matter. All lives do matter. But in particular, black lives matter because black lives are the ones that are being forfeited here. Our number, 1-888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888. You don't have to talk about it. Maybe you want to talk about the debate and whether or not Hillary Clinton won or Bernie Sanders lost or Jim Webb ought to get out of the race. (laughs) Give me a call. That number, of course, not of course, 888-874-4888. It's 29 minutes before the hour, 7 o'clock. I got a whole lot of show left and not a great deal of time to do with it, but we'll get to all of it. We're going to take a very quick break. Stay with us. This is the Mark Riley Show on the Progressive Radio Network. the hour of seven o'clock it's the mark riley show my name is mark riley and we've got josie from brooklyn who's holding on josie how are you doing this evening uh we've been doing well i used to call you at another station i remember Um, i remember how you been i've been pretty well how have you and i hope you're well i'm doing great and i'm glad to hear you're back on on the radio uh, and I read some other articles about um, uh, Tamir Rice, um, and uh, one of them said that Ohio is an open carry state. Yes. Where it is legal to ca- carry openly a gun. I don't follow the details of the laws, what kind of gun. But, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, these were co- this was a cop. Cop is going to have I, an open car- no, He's I, carry. No, I know. They, anyway. they drove up to the kid. No, I'm talking about the kid. They drove up on the kid, and before he had a chance to say much, they shot him and killed him. And in a state where it's legal openly to carry a gun. Um, That's one thing, and um, uh, I hope that people can can gradually get to the bottom of this and make laws safer, um, gun laws among other, other things. Uh, New York City Council is also working to improve in, uh, local um, police and and in jail situations by trying to reduce or eliminate bail for nonviolent um, offenders. I know um, I saw that, and and there's been some pushback from some of the judiciary about that. You know, judges Josie get insulted when you uh, imply that the decisions they make about setting bail are somehow improper or, or that bail is often set too high. Now, as one who's been in various courtrooms, uh, I've seen the kind of turnstile justice that goes on when people are being arraigned or people are being charged. And sometimes, i got to be honest with you, there's no rhyme or reason to it. 
You know, the, the, well, the, the prosecution the says whatever, just, and the judge may say own recognizance, or the judge may say five grand. You know what I mean? I've heard at city council a man who wasn't who was current, who eventually worked out after prison, after jail or prison in the Doe Fund, D-O-E Fund, and he oh, was forty. Yeah. He was nicely uh, in a nice suit, nice shoes. Uh, interview ready. Uh, he spoke at city at city council hearing at the end of the summer this year, and um, as part of the hearings to analyze what happened in the bail system. And he said, when he was sixteen, he's now in his forties. When he was sixteen, he was arrested for something. He did not own two hundred and fifty dollars bail. He was too ashamed to t- ask people that he knew who uh-huh. wouldn't be able to lend it to him. He was so ashamed. He did not realize what a mistake he was making. He accepted jail uh, instead of the shame of asking for that amount of money. It was not a violent situation. And what jail taught him is you cannot get a job and you're among hard criminals. And you are among hard are... criminals. And Josie, uh, yeah. it, it, it's part of a system that really is stacked against anybody that gets busted, guilty or innocent. Because you know what happens? Uh, you can't make $250 bail. You end up going out to Rikers Island. Uh, when you do come in contact with an attorney who's off times a public defender, and I'm not knocking public defenders, but they, are, they say to you, well, you know, we can, uh, uh, we can get it uh, adjudicated that in means, contemplation of dismissal the, or something like no, that. that, that and you, you know what I mean? That leads to the boy who's 16 who killed himself after three years for not doing anything. Khalif Browder. Khalif Browder was his name. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, uh, Browder, yes. I, I have mentioned his name at hearing. I went. I followed the hearing. And people can go, look it up at city council calendar and go to the, uh, to the committee hearings about these issues. I'm absolutely. not going to have your time. I'm glad to hear you, and I'll be in touch occasionally. All right, Josie, thanks so much for calling. Much appreciated, huh? You know, uh, Josie brings up a number of very good points. And a lot of this flows from the way the justice system works. And remember that police are part of the justice system. Let's be clear about that. Uh, We may not always directly connect them with the justice system, but believe me, they're part of it. And, you know, they go out and arrest somebody, and they go, the person is brought before court. And the process, and by the way, it's not just the defense that may not have a single clue about what this person's charged with or whether they're innocent or guilty. In many cases, the prosecutors don't either. It's like they'll grab a number out of a hat. Okay, uh, this happened, this happened, this happened, this is what we're alleging. We ask for bail in the amount of blank. And then they just fill in the blank. And again, not to knock prosecutors, but this is what happens in a system that really is overburdened, a system that is not prepared to deal with the number of people who come before it. And, you know, uh, again, you know, Tamir Rice, you know, I have a 12-year-old grandson, great basketball player, this kid. And about maybe two, three weeks ago, he and one of his friends came out to our house and spent the afternoon on a basketball court nearby with my son, his father. And, you know, you, you kind of get into, get a, a great deal of empathy for kids when you're around kids for a while. And, I mean, you know, I, I love my grandson unconditionally. And the young man that came with him, good kid. You know, they're playing one-on-one against each other, and my, my father's son is having them go through drills and that sort of thing. And when you think about a 12-year-old kid, this, these kids' voices haven't even changed yet. I don't know whether Tamir Rice's head. I don't know what his size was or whatever. But the bottom line is, these are kids. You know, if, if a kid, God forbid, gets, gets molested at 12, People want to bury the guy who did it, and rightly so, because it's a kid. And if a cop is looking at somebody's hands 
and not realizing they were a kid, that's a problem. That's not something to say he was reasonably justified or whatever that gibberish was that that report came out with. Anyway, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get like real. I don't want to get too upset. I'm too old. Um, but, you know, it's, it's something that we all, in my judgment, have to think about. And before I leave this, though, let, let's be clear about this. This guy, Loman, who killed Tamir Rice, was a rookie cop. And he admitted on his job application for the Cleveland Police Department that his primary source of income prior to his hiring was under-the-table jobs. And then there was a letter in Loman's file from the Independence, Ohio, Police Department, where he had previously worked, that concluded he did not possess the maturity necessary, maturity necessary to perform well as an officer and recommended that he be released from the employment of the City of Independence. Quote, I do not believe Patrolman Lowman shows the maturity needed to work in our employment. I do not believe time nor training will be able to change or correct these deficiencies. And the guy's about to walk. Think about it. The guy is about to walk. My good friend Michael S.W. is on the line calling from the Bronx. What's up, money? Hey, guy. How you doing? Good. How you feeling? A little bit better. I was feeling under the weather. But now my goal is to get over it. Ah, there you go. Yeah, big time. Not much feeling like this. But um, did you by any chance get to see the um, Democratic presidential debate last night? No, I, I did. I was working last night, ironically enough. Oh, I, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> well, no, it was cool. I, I mean, I, I, I was doing another radio show. I do a show with the BBC in England, and I was All doing right. that last night. Have you heard about it? Oh, yeah, we talked about it for the first 15 minutes of the show. Right. And I got to give hands up um, to Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. I think these two will make a dynamic team together because they pretty much agree with each other. Um, they see eye to eye about 80 or 90% of the issues. And unlike the Republican convention where it was always me, myself, and I, and not focusing on the American people, the Democratic convention, uh, I'm sorry, Democratic debates, I'm jumping the gun here, did not have have any racist attacks, did not have any sexist attacks, did not have any personal attacks towards one another. Only thing they kept focusing on was pretty much all all in all, the truth, they focus on the Republican obstructionism that was going on, the Republican hypocrisy that we're still trying to get this nation to move forward, but always being blocked by Republicans. And the highlight in terms of the Republican obstructionism was when Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton shook hands after Bernie says, I'm sick and tired of the damn email. But you know what the Republicans have that the Democrats don't have as much? Take a guess, uh, Michael. They got a lot of nerve, that's for sure. They're no, no, they got the one other people. thing. They got money. money. And that they is money. And, and I'm, uh, th- this is going to tie into the next story when, when we finish talking. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a very interesting story in the New York Times about who's putting, uh, and, and the small number of people who are putting money into this early stage of the campaign. And it's 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 crazy when you think about it. But, but you know something? No, go but, ahead. But you, but you know something? This is probably one time, 2016, I don't think money is really going to dominate as to who wins the election. And here's why. I heard very interesting. Now, you take the Democratic frontrunner, Hillary Clinton, and the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, and then the main question that kept going on throughout some of these um, discussions, the group discussions on um, page, on like Facebook pages, and even some of the radio talk discussions, is that who can win more of the independent votes? And my answer to that, it looks like it would be Hillary because if Donald Trump, who's the front runner of the Republican side, he only has a favorable rating of somewhere in the 40s. Yeah, I know. Dominates, 
he dominates over the um, second and third place Republicans. But let's look at Hillary. Oh, no, wait, 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 seven... wait, 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 hold on. Before you go any further with that, okay. he used to dominate the second and third and fourth place people. Right now, Trump's at 27, Carson's at 21. We're in October, the year before the election. Okay. I, I personally don't think Donald Trump lasts until the Republican convention, but that's just a, a you know a wild, crazy yeah. theory I have. Trump is not necessarily his his wave may have crested already at the end of the summer, mm-hmm. and I don't know who is going to end up taking his place. It might end up being Ben Carson, although Ben Carson has spewed such ridiculous garbage. Uh, that I, I can't imagine that anybody would seriously entertain the idea of voting for him. But here's uh, the catchy part. Here's the catchy part to this, Mark. Be it Donald Trump or even Ben Carson, when you compare both of them individually to Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton has a 79% approval rating amongst the people. I'm talking about amongst the people generally. I take into account of not only each individual winning their party's votes, respectively and individually, but also winning. I know the independent vote, but see, Michael, here's the thing, and, and I got to get off the phone. But thank you so much mm-hmm. for calling. I really appreciate it. Thank you Michael, so much for that. Have a good one. Michael brings yeah. up some really interesting points in terms of who's going to vote where, but that gets into the next story that I'm going to run by. And it was in the New York Times. I don't know how many of you saw it. Nick Confessori, Sarah Cohen, and Karen Urish wrote it. Uh, 158 families in America provided nearly half of the early money for efforts to capture the White House. 158 families, along with companies they own or control, contributed $176 million in the first phase of the campaign. Not since Watergate, according to the New York Times, have so few people and businesses provided so much early money in a campaign. And this is the important part, party people. Most of it through channels legalized by the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision five years ago. Thanks, Supreme Court. Of course, it was a close vote, but still, thanks, Supreme Court. Now, the thing that I found fascinating about this, all right, 158 families, half the contributions in the early part of the campaign. And by the way, these are not who you might think they would be. Few work in in the traditional ranks of corporate America. They don't come from inherited money. They built their own businesses. More than a dozen of these donors were born outside the United States, coming here from Cuba, the old Soviet Union, Pakistan, India, and Israel. So much for immigration reform. <laughs> anyway, let me not, let me not be stupid. Um, but here's the part that I find absolutely passing. First of all, these people, some of them, think they're doing the country a favor by doing this. And by the way, a lot of this money does not go directly to the candidates. They go to the super PACs that then run ads, not for the candidate they actually support, but against the one they don't. Um, And by the way, those 158 families contributed $250,000 or more. An additional 200 families gave more than $100,000. This is the early part of the campaign, y'all. The early part of the campaign. But what's fascinating about this, and, and this is from the Times article, I ain't making this up. In Mar- and this is a quote, in marshalling their financial resources chiefly behind Republican candidates, the donors are also serving as a kind of financial check on demographic forces that have nudged the electorate toward support for the Democratic Party and its economic policies. End quote. So on the one hand, you have a democratic, demographic shift in the American population. And on the other, you got money. Money that is allowed to be given based largely on the Citizens United decision. 
So these folks are putting up money, as one of them says, uh, they've done well. They want to see other people do well. They want to see other people do well on their terms and through policies that involve rather large tax breaks for themselves and their friends. And hopefully, I guess they think, it will trickle down to the rest of us. Now, trickle-down economics didn't work when Ronald Reagan tried it. But this is what they tried as the snake oil that they sell to the American people. Oh, yeah. You cut our taxes by more than what you cut average Americans' taxes for, and average Americans will do better because we have more money. It is the most counterintuitive nonsense I've ever heard. But that's what they tell people. A hundred fifty-eight families, and they funnel this money through super PACs, which, by the way, again, thanks Supreme Court for Citizens United. They can raise unlimited sums from any donor, and so far, those super PACs have amassed the bulk of the money in the election. Now, what's also a little fascinating about this, from my perspective is that they've been donating overwhelmingly to Republican candidates. But at the same time, as Michael S.W. pointed out, the leader in the Republican polling, uh, polling for the Republican nomination, is Donald Trump, who doesn't take money from any of them. Think about that for a minute. Trump said publicly the other day, I I haven't had to spend any money. I'm getting all the free media I can handle. And I told you all about this. I told you, I told you, I told you. The, the media's slavish... Do you know that there was an article in one of the papers that chronicled Donald Trump's tweeting about the Democratic debate? I'm sorry, I didn't see anything about Lincoln Chafee tweeting about the Republican debate or even Bernie Sanders tweeting about the Republican debate. But Donald Trump, by dint of God knows what, is worth an article of, and by the way, that article constitutes free media, just in case you all were, you know, were wondering. He gets free media by tweeting about a debate that's not even his party. How the hell do you get away with that? I'll tell you, but that, that's another discussion for another day. I've told you all about this before. You know, I mean, and, and I have to say, you know, CNN got huge numbers last night. I don't think they got huge numbers in New York because a lot of people were watching the Mets. <laughs> but, and I was working, so I couldn't watch it. But uh, I find it fascinating. 158 people, just about half of the money that has been contributed thus far, $176 million in the early going of this campaign. Now, you figure if they don't put up $176 million now, What's going to happen, like, after Labor Day next year? These people are going to be throwing money at, at, at various races, which, by the way, you know, if, if they decided to take some of that money and use it on infrastructure, maybe to build the, the tunnel between, you know, train tunnel between New York and New Jersey, they'd stop messing around and put the money towards something useful instead of promoting old, dead, fetid, policies, and that's what they are. Some people may think I'm going overboard, but that's how I feel. And I'm an old man now. I can say what I feel. (laughs) You know what I mean? And speaking of saying what I feel, the president is now appearing to be willing to keep a force in Afghanistan large enough to carry on the hunt for al-Qaeda and Islamic State militants. Well, what were they doing up until now? You know, the president was supposed to be getting everybody out of there, okay, But because so many people in Congress and in the court of public opinion are saying, if you leave, Afghanistan will collapse. Well, why the deuce would Afghanistan? We've been there since 2001, for God's sake. 14 years, almost a decade and a half. And they can't do any better than that unless we're there? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, that's not to say that, you know, 
you don't want to carry on a fight against al-Qaeda and Islamic State because they'll, they'll carry the fight to us. I mean, I, I understand that. But And right now, they're not even talking about how big or how small a military presence they might end up having there. But I got to tell you, I, I got, I, and I've said this before about, you know, military stuff. I got a bad feeling about this. See, because those American military people that end up getting left there or staying there or being deployed there, what are you going to tell their families if, God forbid, anything happens to them? Okay. Uh, part of this, by the way, has to do with the fact that the Taliban apparently seized and then lost the northern Afghan city of Kunduz. And they did it with a relatively small fighting force. Uh, you know, the, the see, the Afghans know their turf and... You know, the what they call the insurgents are now spread through more of Afghanistan than at any point since 2001. So what have we been doing there? You got insurgents, whatever that means, Islamic State, Taliban. And by the way, uh, these people are not all, you know, gathered together, locked arm in arm, singing Kumbaya either. Apparently, Islamic State got some problems with the Taliban, who's got problems with Al-Qaeda, who's got problems. They, they all got problems with each other. But they're united in one overarching philosophy. They don't like us. Now, you know, my initial sense is leave, take everybody out, let the Afghan government, because they supposedly do have a government there, let them figure it out. That would you know, uh, make my heart beat fast because we'd have at least uh, uh, a number of American soldiers out of harm's way. But, you know, these different organizations enforce their will by slaughtering people in the most vicious, in the most public, and the ugliest ways. And I don't, you know, I, I, I don't condone that. And I don't think we can just sit back and just say, well, okay, well, go ahead, Al-Qaeda, do what you want in Afghanistan. I understand that. But, uh, you know, it can't be status quo. You got to do, if, if you're going to do something in Afghanistan, do it to win. All right? Do it to stop these people and disabuse them of the notion that they can go out and shoot girls in the face or, or you know, deny women education or say that people have to follow a particular type of Islam or else, do that. Why not just do that? God, I'm almost out of time and I haven't finished all my stuff yet. You know, the Supreme Court is now getting ready to rule on whether or not class actions, uh, class action lawsuits ought to be altered so that if somebody is complaining about something, uh, the defendant might only have to give uh, money to the one person as opposed to the class. That's what the Supreme Court's deciding. That's scary. That is absolutely scary. Eric Schneiderman, our attorney general right here in good old New York, is questioning a pharmaceutical company that was criticized last month for actually jacking up the price of a drug called uh, Daraprim from thirteen fifty a pill to seven hundred and fifty dollars a pill. This is this guy Michael? I'm sorry, Martin uh, Schrakelli. He said he's going to lower the price, but he's not taking it back down to fifteen or thirteen fifty a pill. I guarantee you that. He jacked it up because he's greedy. It's as simple as that. And this guy Keith Abelow, who wrote this column, I saw this. It was in the New York Post, defending Ben Carson's statements about. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Holocaust and how, the, you know, the, the Jews should have fought back against the Nazis and all the rest of this. And this was in the context of the last, you know, uh, gun massacre in this country. Uh, it, it's like, what's wrong with you? What is wrong with these people? Uh, it's not for me to figure out. I got to get out of here. My thanks to Jason Taubenfeld, all the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. Stay tuned for more great programming. My name is Mark Riley. This has been the Mark Riley Show. Have yourselves a wonderful rest of the day and a better weekend.